Welcome everyone, I'm Holly Bott, and this is From Surviving to Living, the podcast where raw stories of transformation are told. This is not just a podcast, it's the power of change. God is interested in you. My story is not fiction. I'm a woman, a felon, a sex offender. I did hard time. I am so awed by Jesus, I will risk my reputation and talk about it. He transformed me. He will do that for you. I trust him. I hope you do too. Are you hurting? Are you sick of just surviving? I was too. How does one really, truly live? God causes transformation. It is possible for everyone, thank God. I never saw it coming. Let me tell you how it happens. Get ready for your adventure of faith and life beyond bars. This is From Surviving to Living. Imagine your life on hold for a year, every day another day closer to a prison sentence. I might get only probation or I could get a 12 or even 30 year prison sentence. I pled guilty and sentencing was up to the judge. The wait was terrible. The outcome devastating. This is bail sentencing, and prison intake. A year passed after I was first arrested in 2010, before I was sentenced and sent to prison. During this year, I served three months in county jail, was released on bail, and had many court hearings. I spent the year in a mental fog, in such a haze I was unaware I was a mental zombie. I really feared possible sentencing outcomes but did nothing to prevent them and very little to prepare myself and family for the future. Throughout this same year, my husband's mental health also declined. Our home was so unpleasant. I hated being in it. I can't imagine how awful this was for our children. Have you ever found it difficult to help yourself or someone you love during a challenging situation? I remember my last morning home I hate remembering it, but I do treasure it. My boys, ages 16, 11, 10, and 8, left for school early in the morning. As if make-believe made it so, I pretended a normal day and sent them off to school as usual. 
so many regrets now. I readied my four-year-old daughter, Vivi, to spend the day with my mom while I was at court. I struggled to ignore the reason why my mom would be watching her. As our last few moments drew short, Vivi asked me to read her a book. I mentally shifted gears. I spent the morning buzzing around the house in a frantic state of avoidance, the date jolting me into a sudden sense of urgency at this time. Vivi had no knowledge of my hearing. She simply wanted to prolong our time together before going to Grandma's house. My purse over one arm, shoes on, ready to walk out the door, I paused and drew a breath. Turning, I looked down into her little girl elfin face. She waited, turning one toe casually on the floor. I agreed. We should read. Bibby's face lit up in delight as she danced to her room for a book. I am so glad now for those moments. We returned to the living room, and sitting on the couch together, Vivi snuggled against me while I read. What a tragedy to have lost those days, destroyed them. The agony and grief still lurk in my shadows. It's very hard for me to revisit these memories, to write about them, even today. It's devastating. That same day, I was sentenced to 12 years in prison. The hearing wasn't very long. Near the end, I was asked if I would like to say anything. I had no prepared speech. As I had been all year, I was unprepared, fearful, and ultimately not helpful to myself. Anxiously, I stood. I felt awkward, and I rambled, or so it seemed to me. The judge's face was unreadable and unfriendly. As I spoke, an internal voice advised me, Shut up! I ignored it and prattled on, desperate to evoke mercy from the judge. Quickly, my speech was so convoluted, the internal voice demanded that I shut up. The judge's face was darkening to a deep shade of red and he glared at me as if he agreed with my internal advice. I got the hint and awkwardly returned to my seat, feeling incompetent and shame. Then, the judge announced his decision. Twelve years in prison. I reeled in shock. My vision darkened. The whole room pitched silent. The only thing I heard was my pulse in my ears. The room seemed to tilt and spin. I felt stunned and lightheaded. I was shocked. Suddenly, sound rushed back into the room with a whoosh and my vision cleared. 
leaving the room brighter than before. People yammered around me, but I couldn't make sense of the words. Lawyers asked the judge for things. More decisions were made about me. I understood none of it. My mind rejected all that had happened and demanded a do-over. I felt panicked, frantic to fix this before it was too late. Before I could put paid to the thought, I was cuffed and led from the room. Wait, no, wait! And I was processed into the county jail for the weekend to await transport to prison. This was the same jail I had spent three months in just after my arrest. My grief was horrifyingly raw and fresh. I lacked the ability to even imagine my future. Do you find yourself in a similar place today? The past very difficult and the future hard to see? A guard, remembering me from my earlier stay, tried to perk me up. She sat to chat with me. After a few minutes, she asked, And you have five children, don't you? In shock, I burst into tears, my stomach heaving. Alarmed, she jumped to her feet and quickly backed away from me, apologizing and looking extremely embarrassed. I looked away. I didn't hear her leave. The weekend passed in a fog. At the time of my sentencing in Minnesota, there was, and still is, only one state prison for women. No matter her crime, this is where a woman goes to serve her time. MCF Shakopee, Minnesota Correctional Facility in Shakopee, or Shakopee as we called it. It holds more than 500 DOC female offenders of any security level, minimum to super max. I entered prison in the spring of 2011. I was 36 years old. At the time of my sentencing in Minnesota, one served two-thirds of their prison sentence, so I'd serve eight years of my 12-year sentence. Until then, I'd been a wife and stay-at-home mom to my children. I felt I'd lost my identity. My life changed at once. It would never be the same. My young children would be much older when I was released. I had typical ideas about prison before I was incarcerated from TV and movies. I was about to be surprised. I was transported from jail to prison early Monday. I was wearing a bright orange jail uniform. In jail, everyone wore that outfit every day. I wondered, what do prison uniforms look like? What does prison look like? Well, I was escorted to property to collect the things I would need for my prison stay. I was told to stand against a brick wall and wait. Property resembled a post office window with a gray roll-up shutter pulled down tightly and locked to the counter. As I waited across from the property window, the regular happenings of the prison continued on all around me. I was left to myself in the middle of a long hallway, branches splitting off to who knows where on my right and left. Men and women in different uniforms passed down the hall radio squawking. Lines of women wearing ordinary jeans, khakis, and t-shirts marched past, giggling and whispering to each other. I stared at them. Who were they? What are they doing? They can't be inmates, can they? 
They're dressed in regular clothes. Well, they stared at me too. I puzzled and waited. More women wearing the jeans, khakis, and t-shirts arrived at property holding packages and a line formed behind me against the wall. Eventually, the gray shutter was unlocked from inside and rattled its way to the top. Property was open and ready for business. It felt indeed like I was at the post office. I collected a laundry bag filled with my new belongings and was directed to Medical's waiting room. My next stop as a new intake. That waiting room was tiny. Chairs crammed against three of its walls. An interior door led to the clinic. A sign taped to the door read, Do not knock. We know you are here. I sat and waited and waited and waited. After six hours of waiting, I began to doubt the sign. I didn't knock, but I really wanted to. Eventually, someone opened the door and another step in my intake process was handled. Finally, having been cleared through medical Monday evening, I was released from the intake process. I was told to show myself to my living unit. Where was that? I had no idea. Now sporting the same jeans and t-shirt as the other women, who I figured out were fellow inmates, I slipped out of the medical waiting room and peeked around. I was quickly spotted by other inmates who recognized my nervous demeanor. As helpful tour guides, several women converged on me full of advice. I was pointed to the OCO desk and given directions on how to find my living unit. Shakopee looks a lot like a college campus, nothing like one imagines a prison to be like. I stepped out from the core building where the administration offices, kitchen, library, gym, chapel, and visiting room are found to find myself in a central courtyard. It's very picturesque with picnic tables, benches, trees, flowers, and walking paths. First entered Shakopee in 2011, the prison didn't even have a fence, no guard towers, nothing, despite the fact it's a maximum security prison. I stood and looked up and out across the courtyard. To my left and right, walking paths left the courtyard, heading to other buildings in the distance. Some paths simply disappeared between buildings. At the moment, the courtyard was empty of people. I tried to remember this directions and headed to the living unit named Broker, hauling my laundry bag with me. It was very surreal. Alone on this unfenced property, unguarded, in regular clothes, hurrying across a park-like courtyard to my prison cell. What would come next? Shakopee's living units were unexpected, and so were the inmates. I really gawked like a tourist. I expected the women to look like they belonged in prison. You know, hardened criminals. I was shocked to see fresh-faced high school cheerleader types. I saw women straight from the church bake sale. I saw the most blessed, sainted grandmothers. I saw women from every walk of life in that prison. 
The living units were similar to a college dorm or apartment complex. Inside the front door was a sally port with a rack of mailboxes. Each inmate has a key to their own mailbox. Most living units have a day room with a shared kitchen and a living area. Wings branch off as long hallways. The inmates' rooms are down these hallways, and they really resemble apartment living with regular wooden doors, plaques beside the door with room numbers and occupant names, carpeted hallways, and windows at the end of the hall. I inched up to the guard desk and broker, which is just a few steps from the front door. I was about to have another strange experience. The guard handed me a key ring with several keys and a sheet of paper. I held the keys awkwardly between two fingers, not sure I was allowed to have such things here, and eyeballed the form. It appeared to be a damage deposit slip of some kind. I peered up at the guard in confusion. She pointed at the keys in my hand. Those are the keys to your cell, she explained. Go to your room with this paper and note any damage to your room, then bring it back here and sign it. I stared at her in amazement. I'm in a prison with no fence. I've just been handed keys to my cell. And there's a damage deposit slip for my cell? Where am I? What is this place? Behind me, women enjoying their time in the day room burst into laughter. Something else I didn't expect in prison. Laughter. The guard spotted my questioning look, and perhaps she also noticed the shake of my hand holding the keys. Even lively and cheerful things, when unexpected, it can be unsettling. She smiled and pointed to an upper hallway. Your room is up there. Take your time. Over the next several weeks and months, I felt lost and uncertain. I was also worried for my children's future. I had reoccurring dreams that I was wandering through abandoned houses. It wasn't always the same house, nor any house I had ever known. In one of these dreams, my children's belongings were scattered, their shoes, toys, and clothing. At first, I was comforted. Then I realized these items belonged to their past. As their mother, I intimately knew everything they owned, but that, that was all in the past. The past was now all that I had. This house was abandoned. I wandered around that house in my dream, but it was empty. Someone else had their future. I talked to my children on the phone, sometimes daily. I wrote to them, sent them gifts, and they did visit. But the details of their life, that belonged to someone else now, not me. What interested me over the next eight years was a common theme among us women, no matter how serious a crime. Women often shared with me that they didn't understand their own behavior. They didn't know why they'd done it. Romans 7.15 says, For I do not understand my own actions. I am baffled, bewildered. I do not practice or accomplish what I wish, but I do the very thing that I loathe, which my moral instinct condemns. I felt like this. I wanted to understand. I believed it would help me overcome the negative things in my life. I also wanted to meet my own and other people's expectations. Why? I wanted to be loved. I didn't know what to think. 
I would examine my life over and over, looking for clues, trying to pinpoint the aha moment where everything went wrong. Answers were far from me. Time in prison would shatter core ideas I held about my family, myself, my world, everything. Prison itself wouldn't be a source of change, nor would my own quest for answers transform my life. Change would come from without and unexpectedly. Listener, is there a moment in your life you wished you could change? How do you cope with regrets? Have you ever had your assumptions shattered about a group of people? Can you relate to feelings of loss or disconnect? Have you struggled to understand your behavior? Do you want to understand yourself or others better? The Bible says in Jeremiah 33.3, Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things, fenced in and hidden, which you do not know, do not distinguish and recognize, have knowledge of, and understand. The Bible also says in Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. For more episodes that inspire at hollybot.me. Until next time, remember, your story is never over. God's grace is always waiting to rewrite it. This is From Surviving to Living 